Good morning, Good morning. again. <laughs> Our original nature, according to a Hindu myth, is that we are originally perfect, pure, undefiled, good. But the Hindu gods felt a bit threatened by our purity, our goodness, and our perfection. And they decided that uh, they better hide it from us. And so one of them thought, well, let's hide it under the icebergs. No, they said, the rest of them said, no, uh, humans are gonna explore that. They're gonna find it there. Another suggested, well, let's hide it deep in the ocean. Oh, they're, they're those humans, they're gonna, they're gonna get there as well. How about high in the mountains or in the heavens? Yeah, those, yeah, they're, they're really, they're explorers, they're going to, they're gonna get there. Middle of the desert? No, I think, no, that's gonna be accessible to them. Where, where will they never look? Let's hide it inside them. They're sure never to look there. They'll never find it there. And I have the feeling that they might be right. That this is the last place we would want to look for our true nature. That is right here inside of us. But we're not, we're not, not doing that. <laughs> we are not, not doing that. We are. We are looking inside and intent on finding the truth about who we really are. And today we're going to take a look at one of those things or a couple of those things that we will discover if we are honest with ourselves and look carefully and deeply. And I'm going to speak about this discovery uh, in connection with our study of the engaged Buddhist precepts. And I want to relate this investigation to the fifth of these engaged precepts, which reads as follows. Do not accumulate wealth while min millions are hungry. Do not take as the aim of your life, fame, profit, wealth, or sensual pleasure. Live simply and share time, energy, and material resources 
with those who are in need. There are many ways to address this uh, precept of what is the aim of your life? What drives your life? What are the, the values, the things that drive your decisions, your daily activities? And this may all boil down to what Nagarjuna, who is one of the early Buddhist um, teachers, called the eight worldly winds. The eight worldly winds. If we turn inward and begin to examine what drives us, I suspect we will find that there are, there's a lot of wind. <laughs> there are a lot of winds inside of us. Some of us are, some of us have been told we're full of hot air. <laughs> <laughs> and I suppose there's some truth to that. These are called sometimes the eight worldly dharmas. But I like the phrase, I like the word winds, because they push us around. They, they, they dominate us. They, um, they, they flow through us but largely they kind of assault us, they push us around. And these eight worldly winds are expressed in many different ways, but, but the classical way in which they're expressed is we are guided, whether we are honest with ourselves or not, by fame or its opposite, insignificance, we're guided by gain as opposed to loss, you know, or sometimes we can call success or failure. Okay, there are lots of ways to express these wins. Then there is pleasure. We want to feel good. <laughs> we, that's, we talked in our in our uh, recitation of the loving kindness sutra, sensual pleasures. Uh, we are drawn to pleasure, and we are averse to pain. That's another another du duality. And then finally, praise and blame. Clearly, we love it when people praise us and we, we avoid and actually are sometimes quite defensive about being blamed. So we're governed by these winds that if we examine our inner life, we discover this is what's pushing us to, to do things in our lives. We wanna be successful. We want to be wealthy. We want to enjoy pleasure. We, we, we want to avoid pain. Uh, we want to be praised. I'm going to address what kind of distill these er, uh, eight worldly 
wins into uh, fame and fortune. Just, I'm going to address today one way of expressing these eight worldly wins. I want to talk a little bit about, to begin with, about wealth, money. It's kind of a, sometimes a taboo subject, talking about money. But of course, we live in a capitalist country and often, you know, governed by profits, not just materially, but in our social relations. You know, we, we want to profit from our connections. How, what can, I, how can this person help me, serve me? Um, and we kind of commodify our relationships, even our social relationships. Like when we go for a job, we're often uh, admonished to sell ourselves. How do I sell myself? As if you're some kind of commodity that, that you're Trans, you're making a transaction with. So there's a lot of um, profit motive in our lives and a lot of the sense of wealth being something we are driving for. And we respect and, and uh, honor people in many ways who are wealthy. They are the elite. That's, that's, that's a mark of being uh, successful, worthy, if, you've, if you have a lot of money. Last week, I talked about busyness as being a way in which we establish our solidity, our worth as individuals. We're so busy. We're, we're popular, we have lots of things to do, uh, and, and it gives us a sense of reality. You know, we're real because we're act, so active in doing everything. And Trungpa Rinpoche talked about this emerging from a fear of space. This is what we're, we have here. And you can tell people are just, I don't wanna, you know, I don't wanna come here and just sit in the, in the void, in this emptiness. You know, I'm not doing anything. I'm scared, I have to be productive. So, so this sense that busyness gives us a feeling of solidity of, of the fact that we're real somehow. And the same can be said for money and for wealth. Buddha had nothing against wealth. In fact, and he had nothing against, well, money wasn't exactly, you know, the issue uh, during his lifetime. But um, poverty is, is the cause of a lot of suffering. Uh, he, he was not in favor of poverty in, in the sense of lacking the basic needs of life, because poverty often leads to violence, it leads to um, dishonesty, it leads to the breakup of families, uh, it leads to suicide, uh, it leads to a lot of suffering, as we, we know, impoverished people 
uh, suffer a great deal. And so poverty wasn't, um, wasn't something that he advocated. So having wealth is a virtue. Depending upon how you achieve that wealth, right livelihood, and what your relationship with that wealth was, there's, you know, we say money is the root of all evil. It's not money, it's your love of money. It's your attachment to money. It's your relationship with money that creates suffering. And of course, if you have wealth, you can help others. You can help others who are in need. So wealth is, can be a virtue, but our attachment to wealth, our sense that wealth gives us uh, importance, that we identify ourselves with money, that we feel solid if we have money. Uh, this is again, a way of making real our egos that, that isn't real. <laughs> so, it, it, you know, we have to keep getting more in order to make ourselves feel real, important, uh, worthy. Because at bottom, there is nothing here to feel worthy, powerful. You know, there's, there is, this ego is a complete construction. So we have to keep, keep um, um, reinforcing it. Uh, and so a little bit of wealth, you know, okay, we're beginning to feel that's not enough. We, we have to have a lot more. Um, I know something about poverty. Um, I come from a really poor family. And uh, my father, because he was so um, embarrassed and shamed, um, he would often gather um, as many dollar bills as he could and make them into a kind of wad, you know, of sometimes when you see people paying for something, they reach into their pocket and they come out with a big wad of bills. My father really felt that, felt important. He felt lack of shame when he would go to the store or we, we would go out somewhere and he had to pay for something. And he reached into his pocket and came out with this big wad. I was like, this is solid. This is, this, this is solid. This makes me feel solid. I mean, they were all $1 bills, uh, but it somehow made him feel like he was worthy. And when I was young, I vowed that I would never, ever uh, find myself in that situation, um, that I would never be poor. Um, and I had great ambitions uh, in order to achieve enough prestige and enough status so that I would never have to feel that way. And I managed to do it. It was at great cost in, in, in many other ways, which I won't go into. 
But um, I did manage, not a wealthy woman, but I did manage to accumulate um, a savings. And many people feel not only that they need, uh, they need the cash flow, uh, but they also need a big bank account and they need a pension. You know, they need, they need a lot of money to make sure they're real, <laughs> you know, that they feel safe, that they feel like they, they have a solidity because they have all this money that they can rely on. And I did, I do, did do have a pension. Um, and it, it was considerable. I started teaching at the age of 24. And that was, that was a good young age to start <laughs> teaching at a university. Um, and my daughter, uh, who uh, at the age of 21, decided that she needed to leave State College and travel to San Francisco because she was exploring her sexuality and she, need, she needed to be in San Francisco where that was possible. Um, and so she took my car and said, I'm just going on a road trip, mom, for the summer. <laughs> never came back. <laughs> my, my old Honda, who knows where it is. <laughs> but um, she really suffered uh, in those first years of her um, exploration in California. And for a good bit of time, she was homeless, um, sleeping in her car, she looking for a job. Um, you know, was finding very little. She didn't have a college degree. She was sleeping in friends' places and she was really distressed. And she was very handy. Uh, she now is a general contractor, but she was always very handy with building things and repairing things. And she was paying sometimes these exorbitant rents finally that she just couldn't afford. So we got together and said, maybe, maybe the solution to this suffering is to find one of what's called a fixer-upper, a little, you know, rundown house, and um, see if we can get it really cheaply, and then you can fix it up and live in it. Well, it turns out that at that time in California, all of these fixer-uppers were being purchased with cash by people overseas. They were wealthy people were paying cash for these fixer-uppers and then they were what they were called flipping them. They would remodel them and then sell them for three times the amount that they paid. So you had to have cash in order to buy one of these fixer-uppers. Well, I had a retirement fund. <laughs> and I thought I could take out cash from this retirement fund to buy my daughter a fixer-upper. But 
I had worked so hard to accumulate this solid feeling of, yeah, I have a pension. In order to pay for this fixer-upper, I would have had to take out three quarters of my retirement fund. How could I do that? <laughs> but as I, you know, the last thing I wanted was to feel impoverished, that I didn't have that kind of cushion, we call it cushion, <laughs> uh, to fall back on. This, this actually is the real cushion. <laughs> but anyway, um, so I asked myself two questions. If I hold on to this money, will I be happy or happier? And my answer was no, because the money was just sitting there. It was very abstract. You know, I got a statement every quarter. But knowing that I had that money in in my pension, it didn't make me happier at the, at the moment, or you know, it was just a very abstract thing. And the second question was, if I let go of the money to help someone who is suffering, someone I loved and cared about, would I be less happy? And my answer was no. You know, would letting go of that money make me less happy? And no, it would probably make me more happy. <laughs> so as hard as it was, as I mean, really struggled with it. Um, and I had, there came a time when I actually had to fill out a form and send it to the TIAA craft when that huge sum of money was going to leave my retirement account and enter my daughter's bank account or you know actually pay for this house that moment i was dreading that moment but uh, i i was clear about those two questions that what was my wealth for was it for making me feel puffed up and solid and real when it didn't was doing that? Um, or is it to help someone who needs it? Namely, my beloved child. And that was very clear. So it went. And you know, after it went, I did not, nothing changed. <laughs> Except what happened was all that my worry, all my worries and all my attachments turned into a gift. All that was left, it was not a loss of money, but the presence of a gift to my daughter. That's, that's what was real. The money was not. The money sort of transformed into a gift. And that, even to this day, 
that house is part of the deep bond between my daughter and me. Um, you know, so the money, the money needed to be transformed. So, um, Now I want to turn to fame. In the Pali, it's called kiti. It's kind of cute. <laughs> None of us, I suspect, want to feel insignificant. And that's a legitimate feeling that we want to be recognized, right? we want to be noticed. We don't want to be, we don't want to disappear, right? We need the recognition of others. Blessed is the child who is born to be the most precious thing in the world to his or her parents, because that's the gift of recognition. It's, you are the most wonderful, beautiful, perfect being that ever existed. <laughs> I am, I'm just so incredibly grateful for this beautiful, worthy, wonderful being. Instead of growing up, there's something wrong with me. <laughs> There's, I don't know, um, get a better grade. Uh, for me, it was curly hair. <laughs> My mother, you know, didn't want me to have curly hair. So there was something wrong, or as I was too heavy, or too, you know, it's all your, you know this. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. There's, you you're not the most wonderful, beautiful, brilliant, precious being. And so some of us, many of us grow up feeling the need to be recognized for who we are, just who we are. And sometimes because this need is so profound, it gets distorted into the need for being famous, for being worshiped, for being adored. Sometimes we call it narcissism. You know, we really are so involved. We need, we needy. We need to be constantly recognized by not only one person, but lots of people. And, and, that's a form of fame. That's we 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 want to be special. Want to be special. Want to be. Look at me. You know, I am a Dharma teacher. <laughs> I'm special. None of you. None of you is wearing this outfit except you. But you don't have this. <laughs> you don't have this color. <laughs> and look, 
look at you're all sitting around listening to me. Isn't that cool? <laughs> it's not not enough for me to meet in Dokusan with one of you privately, but no, I have to have <laughs> 11 people. You know, it's not enough just for one. The bigger the Sangha, the more real I am. <laughs> And if I'm regarded as a guru, even better, because you do whatever the guru says. So you you worship, worship somebody. And I suspect that, you know, in your own field, your career, perhaps, you may not want to be the most famous psychotherapist in the world, but you want to be recognized as somebody really um, up there in your field, you know, uh, you want to be the person who sends the rocket off to space and <laughs> appears in, you know, in research Penn State. So people say, do you know, um, Daigen, uh, look, he, he's, uh, he got his picture into the magazine. <laughs> and if we're honest with ourselves, we like that. It's, it's very, it's praise. It's, it's, we, we, we feed off of that. Uh, And this is something that guides us. The, the aversion to insignificance. There is a, um, I want to quote uh, something from, uh, Shogun Trumpa Rinpoche. <clears throat> we fall down and down until we touch the ground. Until we, we relate with the basic sanity of the earth. We become the lowest of the low. The smallest of the small. Perfectly simple. No expectation. If you are a grain of sand, the universe, the rest of the universe is all yours. All the space, all the room is yours because you obstruct nothing, overcrowd nothing, possess nothing. There is tremendous openness. You are totally free because you are a grain of sand. Oh, how many of us aspire to be a grain of sand? (laughs) This is what is sometimes in our practice known as being a person of no rank. And even if you do express rank, which is this, it is best to express it so lightly that you can see the nakedness beneath, the emptiness, the openness beneath. So it's okay you know, to accumulate, to 
have your picture in the newspaper, you know, be recognized as the person who uh, is most loved in your company or whatever it is that gives you rank, that gives you fame. If you're our geography department at Penn State is well known and I graduated from the Penn State geography department. Yeah, so I have, I have recognition here. I have credentials. Um, and of course today, almost anybody can become famous. All you have to do is post something on what, Facebook or? Social media. Huh? Social media. Yeah, social media. And goes viral and you're famous. <laughs> and people love that. I got 1,750,000 clicks or friends or I don't know. I'm not on social media, so I don't. But I know, I know that, that you can become famous like that. So is your fame dependent upon your competence, your uh, intelligence, uh, your uh, achievements? Um, no, for the most part, it's dependent on some image that you're projecting or some cute little thing that you've, it's, it's not nothing to do with you. It has to do with your image. And it also has to do with what the fashion is at the time. It's fame is completely dependent upon other people. And when other people decide that something else is fashionable, you become insignificant. So fame is probably one of the most impermanent things. Because if suddenly the geography department gets people that are really incompetent or you know, then you lose your reputation. And you know about celebrities, you know, it's so disheartening to see movie stars <laughs> who were famous and adored when they were young and then see them in their old age, like Jane Fonda, for instance. I mean, in our culture, when you get old, that's not so good. Um, so it's like, you gotta maintain your youth to maintain your fame, to maintain your reputation. So, it's a very fickle thing, fame. And one of the things about fame and being well-known is that you're also under tremendous scrutiny. People are looking at every single thing you do and are finding usually faults. And once you're up there, there's no place else to go but down there. You can keep trying, as some people do, to get higher and higher, but that itself, they're gonna stumble. And so it's best not, it's best to be a grain of sand. <laughs> so you've got, you know, you've got nothing to lose and you've got all this incredible freedom because nobody's gonna care about what you do or, whether you're, whether you're being adored or whether you're 
being looked up to or not. So there's something lovely about being um, inconspicuous, be behind the scenes. <laughs> yeah. And there is, of course, a need for us to be recognized because we are interconnected. And so a good, uh, ass a good dimension to who we are is the recognition of others. We, we do need to, to be seen. Uh, it, it's, I mean, the grain of sand is still a grain of sand. It's not nothing. It, it, is, it is part of the world. So we need to be seen. And how we're seen in our practice, it is much a much more intimate thing than being famous or being needing a lot of attention from a lot of people. It's more about offering our attentiveness and our attention and also receiving some attention. And I like to refer to um, one of the greetings that the Zulu um, Bushmen uh, use when they, when they greet each other. When they greet each other, one of the Bushmen says, Sawobona, which means, I see you. And the other Bushman says, Sakawina is, I am here to be seen. So what a wonderful greeting. Uh, it's not anything dramatic. It's not, oh, wow, I'm meeting the emperor. It's, I see you. It's very intimate. I see you. I recognize you. And yeah, I'm here. I'm here to be seen. Very intimate, but very profound recognition. Not needing hundreds and thousands of people or people in high places to recognize you but just to be seen by the person in front of you or the person you care about. And so um, I, I think I mentioned last week that my friend who I hike with said before we separate, we usually hug each other. And she said, I want you to, to look at me after we hug, before we separate. I want you to look at me. And I, I thought, wow, what a teaching, because I, I wasn't looking at her. I was already on to the next thing. Okay, we hiked, here's the hug, here's the, you know, here's the perfunctory hug. And now I'm not, I'm not here anymore. I'm, I'm running to the next thing. She says, I want you to look at me. I was kind of, you know, <laughs> I'm the Dharma teacher. <laughs> Why am I not looking at her? I mean, I, obviously, that stayed with me because I'm still talking about it. 
Um, when people send me emails and I'm expecting a response after I say this, some people address me. Good morning, Mado. Morning, Mado. Hi, Mado. Hello, Mado. Others just start talking. <laughs> it's like they could be talking to anybody. No, I want to be addressed and I usually address others. It's not like this um, sort of anonymous, virtual, eth ethereal conversation that's going on. And I just happen to be, you know, <laughs> I, you know, I just happen to be the person who, you know, who's on the other end of sin. You know, I, that bothers me. I want that recognition. I don't want to be just, you know, disappear. I don't want to be absent. Um, that's not exactly fame. It's more like, okay, there's that grain of sand that I'm writing the email to, you know, but I recognize that grain of sand. <laughs> One last thing. I had was talking with our propane supplier, um, Suburban Propane, the other day on the phone. So this is Suburban Propane. This is Jocelyn speaking. Um, what can I do for you? Well, I, I want to increase our deliveries. Um, we had a little conversation. And uh, it's just, I hope you have a good day. And I said, I hope you have a good day too, Jocelyn. And she said, wow. She said, you actually use my name. And I said, of course, I'm talking to Jocelyn. <laughs> she says, nobody, nobody does that. She says, thank you so much for calling me by my name. That's a form of fame, but it's definitely in the spirit of our practice. It's, it's not impersonal, and yet it's not narcissistic. It's not needy. It's a recognition. It's an intimate, even on the phone. It's a, that was a moment of intimacy of Jocelyn being recognized. When you're at, at uh, Trader Joe's and you have uh, Michael, you know, it's like, I'm Michael. You know? <laughs> and how many times would, you know, you might say, have a great day. And they say, you too, Michael. It's, it's a kind of a rare thing. People are just kind of moving around. That's the fame that, that we cultivate in Buddhist practice that kind of recognition, not the recognition of thousands of Facebook friends or um, thousands of people uh, on our website or whatever. It's this, it's this.